so sometimes, you know, family can be a, family can be a tough thing, eh? Um, if you've... What do, you, what, do you like, what do we normally say about family? We normally say things like, you can't choose your family. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You get born into a family, and you don't really get much, much choice in it. Maybe sometimes you say, like, hey, we just, <laughs> we just don't talk anymore. It's just it's better for our relationship that we just don't have one. Maybe some say, like, I don't want... I don't want a family, or, may, or maybe I can't have a family, or, or how about family is fun, hey, have you got that, family is fun, um, maybe we shouldn't all be together as one big family, like it's good if we, we can be family in like just ones and twos, but for us to be in like the twelves and thirteens of the extended family, some of us dread Christmas and weddings and funerals, where we, we get to be around the extended family, but, but family is, po- is important, and we're going to get into kind of today's message is that, that why family? Like why, is, why did God put us in a family? And why are families important? And so that's really what this morning's introduction is about, is the importance of the family. And the, and the family really is central, is, is a central theme that runs throughout the, the, the big story, the narrative of, of the Bible. And we see it right from the beginning. God starts with a family. He starts with a physical family and Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth and the kids that come after that. And then he, he builds into, through, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he builds this metaphorical family in the nation of Israel. And God calls them his children. He says, my son Israel, whom I have loved. And, and the family sets really the, the tone for the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. It really sets the, um, the, the backdrop to that. And, and in, the, in the New Testament times, the Greco-Roman world, it's, it is again the household becomes one of the central units for which the church operates in. It, the church meets in homes, it meets in with families coming together. And on top of that, family imagery, the image of, of us being a part of the family is used for us to, um, to articulate kind of or to explain the meaning of belief in God. So we see this theme running right from beginning to end. And over and over again, we see family coming up and God being being speaking of himself as our father or as the father of the nation. And again, we see how God uses families to bring change wherever he sends them and to bring change where they go to. And as the, as the Old Testament closes, we kind of got Micah as the last prophet in the Old Testament, the last of the minor prophets, and um, it ends. It's not Micah, it's Malachi. Malachi is the Italian, is the Italian prophet, you know that. Malachi. Okay, so Malachi ends the last words in the Old Testament as we have them in our Bibles. It says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And it's it's amazing that that is how the Old Testament closes with God saying, I'm going to reconcile familial relationships. That's what Jesus is going to come and do, is reconcile ultimately our relationship to the Father. And so it's into this, this kind of 430 years of silence. The nation of Israel has become highly religified, so they've got these very structured, organized ways of doing things, and they've got these, it's, it's a, a very religious society, and so they've got God at, a, at an arm's length. They, they're keeping him quite far off, and they understand the might and the majesty and the transcendence and the greatness and the God, and they have, a, they have a, an overwhelming fear of God to the point where they won't even say his name. And so it's into this context that Jesus is born, and he comes and he comes and he, and he upsets the religious leaders of his day. He really miffs them off. And he comes in, and he comes in speaking and, and calling God his father. 
and teaching his disciples to do the same thing when he prayed. He said, when you pray, you pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. And the religious leaders got so upset with Jesus and the way he did that. And it says in John 5, 18, it says, they tried all the more to kill him because he was even calling God his own Father. You see, we take it for granted that God is our Father, and we, we're so used to that concept. But in those days, it was something that ultimately got Jesus killed. That was the thing, because they said he was making himself equal with God. And so that's one of the main reasons Jesus was crucified, is because he said, God is my, I am the Son of God. It's incredible. So in Matthew's Gospel, we see the story unrolling of this heavenly Father who is with us, who's graciously with us in the person of Jesus, his Son. Matthew's story tells the coming of the Son to call God's sons and daughters in Israel to repentance because the kingdom is near. And by his sacrifice and subsequent death and resurrection, Jesus makes it possible for us who are Gentiles. Not unless somebody's Jewish, we're all Gentiles. If you're, when you read the Bible, we're not part of the Jews, so we're, we're the Gentiles. But he makes it possible for us to be able to be part of the family of God through faith and to call God our Father. Pete Scazzaro says this, excuse me, he says, although the New Testament contains 96 metaphors for the church, the church as family is the one most widely used. The church as a family is the one most widely used. And so for us, that is the most widely used metaphor of what we are a part of. When you come to faith in Christ and you are added to the church, capital C, the big church universal, the metaphor that we need to live in and live from is that of a family. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to go through the six-part series, and it's going to, today is the importance of family or, or why family, Next week, we're going to look at marriages and, and singleness. Um, week three, we're going to look at kingdom parenting. Then we're going to have a series pause on October 30th when Donnie and Ronell come. Um, the week after that, we're going to have the one another. So what does church's family look like? like what is, how, do we, how do we live together as, as a church family? Week five, Dave's going to do adoption or being adopted into the family. And then week six, uh, growing in the family. So what does it look like to have growth or to be growing in the family? So, if we look at that question, why is family so important? What is it that makes God choose that metaphor of family for the church? And why does God choose family so often as the central theme to speak about what we are added into and what we are connected into? And I believe that it's because family gives us a permanent place to belong. So you're all, I'm sure you're all aware, but Seth, our oldest child, is adopted. You can see because he looks different. In the beginning, people were like, we were going, we don't know whether we're going to tell him or not. When he's, I'm kidding, we're not. And so it's, a, it's pretty obvious. But, but what happens, and, and, and something we say to all of our kids is that I will love you no matter what, and you will always be my son or my daughter. Always. No matter, you can, like, you can choose to reject me and leave. You can choose to say you're not my dad, but that will not change my heart towards you. That will not change the way that I view you. And so family gives us this permanent place to belong. We are always part of that family. Psalm 68 verse 6 says, God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. It doesn't say that he, he sets them in, in good organizations or in businesses. It doesn't say that he sets them in schools or varsities. It doesn't say that he, he sets them in, in buildings or in a team or in a club or in a society. So he sets the lonely in families. Over and over again, the theme of family running through Scripture. And so we must conclude that family is important. 
and can have a massive impact on the world we live in, both our, our physical and our spiritual family. And just by way of example, there's a, there's a brilliant study, and I, some of you may have seen it before, on a comparison between Jonathan Edwards and a man called Max Jukes and their family legacy. So Jonathan Edwards is this um, interesting-looking chap there. So he is, uh, he's a, got, a, got a good hairstylist, and he was, a, he was a Puritan preacher in the 1700s. And so he lived a fairly, a fairly long time ago, uh, most famously known for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a good read for a Sunday afternoon. He was one of the most respected preachers of his day. He attended Yale College, which was still fairly new at that time, at the age of 13. He went on to become the president of Princeton College, and he married his wife, Sarah, who was even better than him, according to uh, the one scholar, in 1727, and they were blessed with 11 children. It's a strong statement, blessed with 11 children. Every night, no, 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 wait, every night when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and then praying a blessing over each child. That's why it was an hour. And Jonathan and his wife, Sarah, they passed on this great godly legacy to their 11 children. So A.E. Winship, who did the study on Jonathan Edwards' um, descendants, is about 150 years afterwards. He says, this is a quote out of the book he wrote, he said, much of the capacity and talent, intensity and character of the more than 14,400, more than 1,400 of Edwards' family is due to Mrs. Edwards. None of the brothers or sisters of Jonathan Edwards had families with any such marvelous record as his, and to his wife belongs not a little of the credit. So he decides, this Winship guy decides to trace the descendants of Jonathan Edwards almost 150 years after his death. And his findings are remarkable. We're going to look at them now. But what we're going to do is we're going to compare them with a guy who lived in New York at around the same time as Jonathan Edwards, this chap Max Jukes, who looks like that. Bit of a different, bit of a different picture. It's a, it's a prison picture. <laughs> so Max Jukes lived in New York at about the same period. And his family legacy is very, very different. So won't you put up that comparison pic, please, Groomy. So Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes, now you can't read it, it's a bit small, but anyway, it includes one U.S. vice president, a dean of a law school, a dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and over 285 college graduates. So that's of his descendants that, were, that they could find out about. People who contribute to society, people who build others up, people who add value, people who brought about change where they were. On the other hand, Max Jukes' descendants included the illustrious seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, and 440 people who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Over the, of the 1,200 descendants of Max Jukes that were studied, 300 of them died prematurely. An absolute drain on the societies that they were part of. But the, it's, it's incredible how those contrasting legacies prove what some people call the five-generation rule. And that is that how parents raise their child, the love they give, the values, influences not only their children, but their children's children and the grandchildren of your children for generations to come to the fourth and to the fifth generation, either for good or for evil. And that's a challenging thought as a parent. If someone studied 
your descendants four or five generations later, what would you want them to discover? Would you, would you want more of a, an Edwards legacy or more of a Max Dukes legacy? And the life you live will determine the legacy that you leave and the legacy that goes on in your kids after you. Pete Scazzaro puts it quite funny like this. He says, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. <laughs> and it's quite true. But it, it, <laughs> not you have grandpa bones, just he lives in there. The importance of our earthly family and the impact that it can have on our world for the kingdom of Christ cannot be understated and underestimated. The family is such an integral part of society that in order to bring about much change and lasting change, God, through the Apostle Paul, speaks to us about how families should function and live together. In the New Testament, there's a couple of passages, and, and scholars call them the household codes. So how households or how families should function together and how they should live together. And there, um, if you're writing notes, it's in Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9, Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, and 1 Peter 2, 18 to 3, 7. And I believe that God, God puts these household codes and how families should live with, alongside this repeated metaphor of family because God knows that in order to bring about macro change, so big change on a societal level, how many of us want to see big change in our country? We do, yeah? In our region, in our town, in our, in our province, and in our country, we want to see this big change. And we complain about the, the bigness of some of the things and the, the macro level stuff that's going on. But what God does is he doesn't necessarily immediately go for that thing. What he does is he addresses the family unit. Because he knows if we can change the family, we can change society. If we can make the family live in a godly way, society will inevitably become a godly society for generations to come. Not just for now, but that's setting it up. And it's a compound interest kind of way of looking at it because it expands. So but I have three kids. So if one family chooses to live for the kingdom and that legacy passes on to the kids, then the next generation we've now got three families living for the, for the kingdom. Do you see how it grows and expands and works like that? Change begins at home, that old saying. If you want to see change in society, begin at home. Start with the way that you operate as a family. And that's kind of what this series is about, is how do we operate as a family in a kingdom way? And it's the same for the church. If we want to see change in the church universal, it must start with the local church. We must start functioning and living in a way in a local church that reflects the family of God, that reflects the character of what we want to see in the way that the church operates universal. It's easy to complain and to pick out the bad things, but we need to, we need to live in a way, both in the family and in the church, spiritual and physical, that is godly principles and based on biblical instruction, not the latest parenting trends or political ideologies, because God's truth is timeless. This family that we want to be a part of, whether that's physical or spiritual, can only be built when we first understand that we are part of the king's family. We must first be secure in, in our position in the family before we can live that out and invite others to be a part of that. When we secure that we are sons and daughters of the king, we're able to raise others into the same standing as heirs in the kingdom. So as our song said in the beginning, we are family. They sing, we are family. But you kind of ask the question, like, who is family? How do you get in the family? How, like, what is the criteria for entering in? And Jesus says this in, in both Mark and Matthew, it's recorded that he says, those who do the will of my father are my brothers and sisters. They are my family. Galatians 3.26 
Paul says this. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, writing to the church in Galatia. He says, through faith in Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's a double faith there. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. You know, we often talk about Jesus being in us, but overwhelmingly, they are, it is in the New Testament, but overwhelmingly, it's we are in Christ. And so as, as those, who are, those who are living by faith in what Jesus has done for us, we are children of God. So you kind of look at that and you go, well, hang on, but Jesus said it's those who do the will of the Father. So which one is it? Is it those who do the will or those who are by faith? And it's that same paradox we spoke about this last week in true discipleship. It seems like a contradictory truth, but it's just a paradox that true discipleship really is faith in action. It's not an either or. If you asked, is it faith or is it action? The answer is yes. It's both because they can't be separate. They they actually can't be separated out. Your faith must look like something. If you say you believe something, it must look like something else. It, it must act into, into a changed life. If you want to know what you believe, if what you truly believe, look at your actions. I've used the analogy many times. I used to smoke a lot. And I knew that smoking was bad for me. But I didn't believe it because I still smoked. But until that thing settled in my heart and I actually was like, this is going to steal probably 15, 20 of the best years of my life, I was able to stop that thing. Because the belief changed and that belief worked itself out in action. So we come into this new family by faith, through grace, by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But we don't come into the new family, um, spiritual family as in being in the church. And, and very often in our own families, we don't come in nice and clean and neat and tidy. You know, at that moment of salvation, when you come to that saving faith in Jesus, it's not like everything in you is made completely new. Does that, does that make, you know that? So your spirit is saved. It's with you are, you are with Jesus, forgiven, you're there. But your mind stays the same. You don't lose all your memories. It's not like the slate is wiped clean. I don't know anybody who's had that. It certainly wasn't for me. Your habits are still the same. The stupid body wants to keep doing the same things it used to do. So, and that takes time. So we come into the family with, with some baggage. And a lot of that baggage comes from our family of origins, so our physical family, the family we are born into. We all carry things from that family of origin. And again, Pete Scazzaro calls these, and I'm going to reference him a fair bit because he's fairly good on this, but he calls these, um, he says that these are other entrenched, unbiblical patterns of relating and living. They are entrenched, unbiblical patterns of relating and living. So we've got these ways of relating to other people that we've learned from our family of origin, and some of them might even be unconscious. But if you, and we're going to do a little exercise this week, but if you, maybe how your family dealt with conflict is an easy one to see. Between your parents, how was conflict handled? Maybe, maybe your mom was a, a shouter and your dad just backed down. And so as a man, when a woman gets aggressive with you or shouty with you, you kind of just 10-year-old boy it and it's like, you just, okay, sorry, I'm done. Because that's just what you've learned. How was money handled in your family? Maybe your dad was very authoritarian and he took control of everything. So in your marriage as the wife, you, you struggle when your husband says, hey, will you, will you just sort out the books and just handle the things? And he, leaves it and he doesn't take it as a very authoritarian approach. And so we have these entrenched different ways of living and growing up. We bring this baggage from our, our family of origin. And it's one of the most 
It's one of the most difficult things to change is those things that, that have been entrenched in us by our family of origin. But it is possible to change things. The family we grow up in is one of the most powerful formation forces in our lives. And that's good for us to realize that and see that of how we are formed by our family of origin. And it's terrifying for, for me as a parent because what I do and how I handle things is going to be influencing my kids. But it's a beautiful responsibility because God gives us that responsibility. So we need not be scared of it because God has entrusted us as parents with those kids. So the great news of the gospel is that your family of origin doesn't need to determine your future. God does that. And so whatever baggage you bring, whatever baggage you come with, and we all come with it, we are able to bring that to God and allow Him to change that. So the next few weeks will be pretty much about that. Learning how to do family the Jesus way. So we've established today that family is important, that we are part of God's family. So even if you think, man, I don't have any family, you have family here. But we're going to learn how to do family the Jesus way. Paul makes clear in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, he says it like this. He says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Holy Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That Abba, that word there is just a, it's a Hebrew word. It's a, it's a, it's a close way of calling someone a father. Like, in English, they often say the, the, the easiest way to translate it would be like daddy. So it's, it, it's an intimate expression. So it's a, a daddy father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Interestingly, in that scripture, side note, he says son, son, sons, son over again. He never says daughters. And that does not mean that he leaves women out. It's not a leaving out of women. What is incredible that Paul is writing to there in the Greco-Roman world, the son received the full inheritance in the house. And so what Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ, and that is man and woman, you receive the full rights as an heir in the house. Does that make sense? So woman, you are sons in God's house. In terms of your positional title in the family. You are not a lesser than. Many, many cultures around the world have developed that thing where women and daughters are secondary. Hebrew culture had that. Your daughters got no inheritance unless there was another son because they would be marrying a man who got inheritance from his father. But in this thing, God is saying, you are sons, you are full heirs in the house. So, the Holy Spirit legitimizes our claim as children of God and we're able to address God as our father, as Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, as Jesus both demonstrated and taught us. And this settles us as part of the family of God. But we still need to grow within the family. You know, if, if your child doesn't mature and grow emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, this, it's, it's unnatural. This, it's, it's not how it should be. We were on a, a hike the last few days, and, and one of the things we asked these 13-year-olds was, what is an adult? So we, we, the, the point of the hike was their start of their journey to adulthood. And this beautiful 13-year-old girl just answered it simply. She said, somebody who is mentally, emotionally, and spiritually mature. And the four adults on the camp, me included, sort of went... I'm not sure if I'm an adult yet. I'm not sure if I'm a grown-up. I'm still getting there. Help me, Lord. But we all need to grow in this family. Growth is a natural part of life. And we, we might grow up, we might grow older physically, but we need to grow emotionally, mentally, and spiritually as well.
And the, lo- the New Testament is clear that uh, our growth towards mature apprentices or disciples of Jesus happens best in the local church. And I believe that God's intention in the local church are places where we are almost reparented into doing life God's way. So we come with all this baggage from our family of origin and we get reparented in the local church to doing life Jesus' way. That does, please do not take that. I've just realized how that sounds. Do not take that the wrong way. I'm not trying to set myself up as a spiritual father in this thing. Please don't call me that. Okay. Let's not be weird about it. So, anyway, in the weeks to come, we'll look at how marriages and singleness, how parentings, how relations within the extended family, how our identity as adopted sons and daughters can bring about growth in the family, both in us and about bringing others in. So this week, what we're going to be doing um, is going to be a week for, for self-reflection and exploration. Always a fun thing. If you've ever done that, it can be quite a, quite a painful and quite an unsettling thing. But we need to do it. We have to look at what are we bringing in? What is the baggage we're coming in? What are we bringing from our family of origin? So we're going to use a tool, um, a tool called a genogram. And it really is just a, a picture, like a pictorial way of, of depicting your family history or family tree. But there are some, uh, some keys to that thing. So, um, uh, Norley, won't you, won't you start handing those things out, maybe? Um, so we've got a little worksheet for you. And on the, on the front page, it's got the blank start to a genogram. And then on the second page, it's got some questions that you can ask. Hey? No, no, one per person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one per person. Um, so then uh, it's got some questions that you can ask yourself. Some of you might need to phone a, phone a parent or phone a grandparent to get some of the answers you can. And then the third page is a key on how to fill out um, the relational types within that. So there's various things of divorces and unhealthy relationships and adoptions and men and women and all that sort of stuff. And so that gives you all of that info on there. Then what we're going to do is on our community WhatsApp group, we're going to send out a link to two videos. The one, uh, they basically just explain how to draw your genogram with your family history. And then the second video is how to put in all the little key things. So who did what, where, were there over uh, unhealthy dependency relationships, is there divorce, miscarriages, um, alcoholism, abuse, all of that sort of stuff. So it is very personal. It's not for marks, so you can keep it. Um, we're not going to ask you to hand it in. Nobody else needs to look at it. Um, so there's... Huh? There's not enough. Okay. We'll get more to you. We'll get you electronic ones. We'll put it on the group as well. Now Sharon's got too many. Everybody hand... Stop handing them back. Stop handing them back. You've got to, you've got to keep some. We've got no issues in our family. <laughs> Lord, I'd just like to pray for the spirit of truth in Dave right now, Lord. Let's open his eyes, Lord. Um, but, um, <laughs> but this, um, this tool and this little few pages comes from a church called Bridgetown Church in Portland in America. And um, they've got an organization called Practicing the Way. And so um, we're grateful for them for developing this tool. And it really is it's just a simple visual tool to... Um, to look at the history, the dynamics of your family relationships and, and how they've had an impact on, on us over three to four generations. So, we'll hand, um, so, so you'll keep those. You don't have to hand them in. It really is for you to, to look at those and to, to go through those and to work through those in your own time this week 
So we'll put, we'll put electronic copies on the group so you can print it out if you need to. But we do this because we believe that in, in examining and understanding the generations and, the, and the, the relationships of our family of origin and the history that we, the baggage that we come with, it's key to us allowing Jesus to transform and to change us. We must know what we're coming with before we can face those things and acknowledge that, man, that's what I need to change. So, this week won't be happening in the small groups of that thing. It's just time. Um, some of the small groups might still be meeting with this week, but this is not what you're going to be doing in your small groups. So the small groups in earnest will start from next week, and we'll give you more details next week. So I want to invite you. I want to invite you to join us over the next seven weeks for the six-part series and use the power of an invite that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago to invite others into this thing. It is a helpful thing. There's no copyright on this. If you, if you know friends who want more of it and they want to share it, please share the thing with them, give it to them, let them go through with it. It is super, super helpful. Some of those questions are real hard to look at um, and to ask of your family, and you might find things that are quite upsetting in there. So when you do phone parents or grandparents and, and find those things out or siblings or whatever, be gentle with yourself and with them. Be caring, be loving, and they're going to be like, why are you asking me these questions? This is weird. And it, it is helpful to understand it. So, hey, look, we're just looking at this thing and, and trying to understand how we're going to grow and how we're going to change. So, what we're going to do is choose to live family life in a kingdom way. And that's going to mean sometimes opting out of the mainstream way of doing things. But I would rather follow hard after Christ and live, live in a way that, that brings Him glory and trust in His Word for my kids than in the words of those who haven't been around as long. We're going to take up our mantle to, to boldly take the apostolic prophetic mandate that we have to preach and to live out the gospel in our family relations. And I want to invite you along on that same journey for the next seven weeks. Is that okay? Are we good? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that, that we get to call you Father. I thank you that you are the king of the universe, that you are transcendent, you are mighty, you are majestic, and yet you are also so intimate and close. And you are a loving father. You are a father who desires to speak and to listen and to be a part of what we are in, Lord. And you call us into your story. You call us into your family. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would be secure in the knowledge that we are part of your family. That by faith in Jesus and what he has done, that, that your grace would bring us into that place. That we would realize that we are washed clean by the blood of our Savior, that we are those who have been set free. We are no longer slaves, but we are sons in your house, Lord God. I thank you that we can, we can live from this place. And Jesus, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, that over these next few weeks, that you would come and bring change in us and change in our families. Lord, we long to see a legacy of generations in our families that impact the world for the kingdom, Lord God. We long to see our kids grow into a kingdom calling on their lives, Jesus. I thank you for the wonderful time that we have to input into the kids' lives in church, God, but I pray for the parents in this moment that you would help them to raise their kids in a godly way, to raise their kids in a way that would teach them and show them to seek and to follow hard after Jesus every day of their life. Lord, give us boldness and the freedom to live out the gospel to others. We pray these things in your loving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.